0: Welcome to Tapir Talks, episode five. In this episode, I talked to author Christy Jordan-Fenton, who's written an amazing novel called Horseshit, Stilettos, and Rossin. It's a literary coming-of-age novel set in the Canadian outbacks about cowgirl and exotic dancer Sadie Saudaji. I hope you enjoy this talk, and uh, I hope you will love the novel when it comes out. Thank you.
1: Jordan Fenton. and uh, up until now I've, I've had some things published in literary magazines that were for adults, but I've been mostly known as a children's author. And I grew up well I'm in, in Canada. so I grew up um, part of my life in Alberta in the, in the Canadian West, and part of my life um, just outside of Toronto. I've lived a lot of other places since um, the US, Australia, South Africa. And now I'm in uh, northeastern BC. So it's a place called Fort St. John. It's a territory, the traditional territory of the Doneza, And it's just off the Alaska Highway. So anybody who's ever driven to Alaska would have probably driven by my place. Um, yeah, so it's on the east side of the Rockies, which um, is a very different kind of place than Vancouver. It's still very much um, the Canadian sort of wild west. It's a lot of um, oil and gas. Industry, cowboys, farmers—very, uh, it's very kind of redneck um, sort of place.
0: Right. And you, you, you have kind of experiences in all those fields that you just mentioned. I think both in the the oil fields and the horses and farming. Uh, so, when you were little, did you grow up on a farm?
1: Um, I did until I was seven. So uh, my father is a cowboy. So grew up with lots of horses and cattle and. Um, wasn't that uncommon to wake up on a spring morning? So in this area of the world, we get um, blizzards quite often in the spring when animals are already um, calving and foaling. And so to wake up with uh, barnyard creatures in the bathroom um, during a (laughs) blizzard was not unusual. Uh, I had a a herd of chickens that I I herded around. um, And uh, yeah, I grew up um, probably riding horses like about the same time I could walk. Um, and like I said, um, when I was seven, I ended up moving to a uh, city, which was a, a huge adjustment. And then when I was 14, moved to Ontario, uh, not too far from Toronto. And that was just a whole nother world again.
0: And when you were little, uh, what kind of uh, dreams or the classic question, what did you want to be when you grew up back then? Did you want oh. to be to uh, follow in your dad's thought, footsteps or did you have other ambitions?
1: Uh, I had three very clear ambitions. I've probably um, guided a lot of my life. So I I wanted to be a cowgirl, of course, and I wanted to be a dancer and I wanted to be a writer. I wanted, I knew I wanted to be an author from really, really young age before I could even, even write. I, I wanted to be a storyteller. So, um, I actually still, it's on hold now, but I, um, belong to an adult dance company still. Um, I've rode bucking horses and, um, I, I own a couple of horses now, and obviously um, I write, but that's probably influenced the main character of Horseshit Stilettos and Rosin, um, Sadie, uh, because well, she's an exotic dancer, but also a cowgirl. So um, I guess that's probably an influence is, is my connection um, with dance and with horses and, and all of that.
0: Yeah, of course, it's it's hard it's hard to uh, not think that some part of you is is uh, in this novel when uh, there's uh, very many uh, things that she's done in her life that that you have also done in yours. Uh, so you said that you started to write this. Was it twenty five years ago?
1: Um, yeah, uh, technically twenty six. Um, yeah, it was. So um, growing up, I was uh, a huge Mordecai Richler fan. I'm still a huge Mordecai Richler fan, and. Um, So I was in Ontario at the time and I I didn't get along so well in school and I got called down to the office. So I was pretty nervous. And when I got there, um, my my English teacher, Mr. Brash, was waiting there and he had printed out a go train schedule and a schedule for the Harbourfront Festival of Authors and Mordecai Richler was doing readings there. So he arranged for me to have the day off school and and go in for that. And I was about 17 at the time. So um, went in and I, um, Got to meet Mordecai Richler and then uh, his son, Daniel Richler, who um, has also um, written a book, but he's probably more famous in um, the TV world now. Uh, he used to have a show called Imprint, and they discussed books, and that was my favorite show when I was a teenager. Um, so I was just so inspired, and I was like, no, I really have to be an author. And on the train ride home that night, I just started hearing this conversation um, which I guess is really sort of, uh, it was the beginning of the book. Now it's uh, chapter two. But I heard this conversation between this girl and um, an older man, sort of a, a cowboy type, and I just couldn't get the conversation out of my head, so I went home and wrote it down, and that's, that's really where the novel began.
0: When did you publish your first uh, book?
1: My um, first book I, that was published, I started in 2008, but it was published in 2010, um, Fatty Legs. And that started when my children's grandmother, um, she's an Inuvalak, which is a type of Inuit. And she was telling me, um, we were were driving to town and she told me about how she used to be called Fatty Legs and it was this horrible nickname she was given. So she went on to tell me about when she was just eight years old, she went away to a residential school. um, In the US, they would be called an Indian boarding school. And she was away from her family for two years So she went on to tell me this story about how she was given these terrible red stockings to humiliate her and and all the kids called her fatty legs. And and then she told me the secret she kept for 65 years of how she got rid of the stockings, which was just this great story. So um, I wanted to write it right away. I just, I had all these alarm bells going off. Um, uh, So I had a stepfather for um, quite a bit of my growing up who had been to residential school. And it had really affected his life. And a lot of the people in the community I lived in have been quite affected by residential school. But at that time, um, now it's talked about a lot in Canada. It's starting to be talked about in the U S but at that time it wasn't anything anybody talked about the Canadian government really kept it a secret. And so I grew up with a lot of questions about it. And I guess it was sort of a way to answer my child's self about what happened, but also I wanted my children to be really proud of their indigeneity and I felt like telling a story, where, um, well, the story of their grandmother, where she was she was really abused and and oppressed, but she still found a way to be her own hero. Um, I thought it was really important. I wanted my children to have no bigger hero than their their grandmother, and to to see their indigeneity in a positive way. So, um, that's really where that that book began, and it went on to be um, end up writing four four books about her life.
0: And it's beautifully illustrated, we can also mention, by um, Liz Amini Holmes, who is uh, also uh, represented by Tapir Literary Agency, uh, just uh, happened yeah. to be. Oh, and I know. Uh,
1: yeah, and I'm really, I'm really thrilled that um, she has representation with you, but also I'm so glad that Anak Press, um, who published four of the books um, and who connected me with Liz. I'm so glad that they found her. I think it was it was absolute fate. It didn't take very long before we became really close friends. So, um.
0: yeah, and I feel like you could almost see that in in the in the books. There's a there's a nice um, dynamics between the text and the the images. I think so. I, you're on the same wavelength, so to speak. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, at least that,
0: that's how I, I see it.
1: Yes, and we're, we're dying to work together again. We've both been so busy trying to pursue um, our own other projects, but we're, we're definitely looking at getting back together again and, and doing something maybe in a, in a totally different um, direction. But uh, we work really well together. So I think we both are people who can take a lot of criticism uh, well and use it as a challenge to evolve and, and even produce something better. So we work really well together that way.
0: Which is, which is unusual. Uh, often taking uh, criticism is, is a very difficult thing for, for most writers and illustrators, I think. I, I, uh, yeah. Because one feels very passionate right, about your own work. So you feel always like other people coming and you feel like they're intruding a little bit in your own work.
1: Well, I think if you take it personally, but if you take it as um, an opportunity to challenge yourself and go even deeper and bring more out of yourself... Um, while still staying true to what your vision is. I think that um, criticism is great. I think editors are, are, are people that I collaborate with. That's my best friends. I don't think I'd be able to produce what I do without that kind of feedback because as an artist, your um, scope of perception is pretty limited. And, um, you know, it's your job to honour the story as much as you can. But there are ways when you're expressing yourself that people aren't necessarily picking up what you're trying to say and having... Um, other people do that for you and, and point that out is, is really valuable, I think.
0: I was wondering about Stella in, um, in uh, Horseshit and uh, uh, Stilettos and Resin, which you basically, how do you shorten the, the name of the novel when you talk about it? Uh,
1: you just call it Horseshit, maybe? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Let's call <laughs> know, it Horseshit. I know
1: when I'm writing, I just use um, like the first letter of, of, uh, of each of the, the words,
0: Yes. No, I, I, I mean, the title is brilliant. Uh, I, I just fell in love with the title the first time I saw it. Uh, I, I, I'm very into titles. I'm, I'm always curious to see how people came up with, with certain titles. And, and this title was right. It really stood out. Um, so Stella in the novel, mm-hmm. is she also connected to your mother-in-law somehow?
1: Uh, maybe in a way. I think she also has to do with um, some of the, the really phenomenal women that I have known who... Um, are indigenous some of them passing so that means um, they're not if you looked at them you wouldn't necessarily know that they're indigenous um, who've gone through a lot of uh, like colonial trauma in their life. so Stella is someone who um, she's a socialite she's very successful she's very much in her own power and you would take for granted that she's ever had like you just wouldn't know that she's ever had any challenges in her life so she um went to a residential school. She was a victim of human trafficking, basically. Um, But she still managed to come out this really strong, powerful woman. And I I thought it was really important to show that. I I know so many women in my life, uh, maybe who aren't millionaires, but who have been through unimaginable trauma and have just come out so strong and people would have no idea. And and, um, we have this tendency, at least in Canada, when I think it's it's across uh, North America or Turtle Island, um with indigenous people to define them by their trauma and I really wanted to have a character who was not defined by her trauma it's something that influenced her but that's definitely not what you would think of when you first meet her
0: right I think it was the residential school thing also that made me think that there there might be a connection yeah
1: I have many uh, elders and knowledge keepers that um that I spend a lot of time with um through like my spiritual practice who Um, have also been to residential school. It was was, uh, a pretty far-reaching thing. It only ended in 1996, which was a year after I graduated high school. So there's a number of people in Canada um, and the U.S. who've been affected by it. And so I think she's really sort of a bit of a homage to those women who've come through and managed to just still be so powerful um, in themselves and really uh, done a lot of healing and are finding their way back to their own culture and ceremonies.
0: And I think you women's rights in, in general is something that you is really important for you, um, if I understand. And you you are are you involved in some organizations uh, internationally?
1: Um, yeah, well, I'm involved with Vital Voices, so that's a group of women um, globally. I don't even remember now how many thousands of women I think that are involved in Vital Voices, and um, it's the one defining characteristic of all the women involved in Vital Voices is that. They're solving problems through um, maybe not traditional ways or what we think of um, like traditionally contemporary ways. They're solving them in very um, female approaches or what we would consider to be a, a female approach to problem solving. Um, yeah, so it, it's a network that supports uh, women who are, who are looking at um, doing things in different ways. And so the work that I do uh, talking about residential school history, um, there's a lot of people doing different different things to um, advocate. We call it reconciliation here. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of um, the term, but uh, it's really, um, I, I go to, into schools, basically. I talk to children and I explain about, along with my children's grandmother, and we talk about residential school and we start shifting perspectives with children about, um, uh, about, about the empowerment of indigenous peoples uh, are like self empowerment and self agency. Um, we shift perspectives on, um, understanding, uh, why there are some of the mental health problems that there are with some indigenous peoples because of, um, the trauma that they've experienced. And we do a lot of decolonization work talking about valuing indigenous technologies. And, um, yeah, so I became a part of, of the organization of vital voices basically because, um, Using storytelling to um, sort of promote Indigenous rights and to do decolonization um, was was kind of a way that I was trying to to solve a big problem that I seen along with my children's grandmother.
0: Right, and when you were in Af you were in Africa for uh, was it a year? Yeah,
1: yeah, just over a year in South Africa. Um, yeah, in Cape Town.
0: And you worked you worked with the street kids, or um,
1: yeah, I did, but not in. Um, Not through an organization. So basically where I lived was near Long Street, uh, this one street over, which is a very touristy street in um, Cape Town. And there were a lot of street children. And what I saw is that they they didn't have a mom. So I felt like children really, all children need a mom. Um, some of these children, even at a very young age, were very hardened, um, had a lot of addictions and things, but I, I felt like they still needed a mom. So I would um, go at nighttime uh, every evening. i go and read them stories, or I would bring them paper and crayons so that they could draw pictures and, and just have a moment of doing very childlike things.
0: Wow. So uh, when was this?
1: Um, I want to say 2001. Maybe I moved there... Um, like just after September 11th happened,
0: right? So were you kind of a group of people going out and and uh, doing this work and reading to the children, uh, or no, I were you that I I, did. all by yourself? Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, through um, I had a friend who was actually a member of the ANC, and he had some. He knew some of the street children and some of the. Um, there's sort of a pecking order as the children get older, and he knew some of the older ones that sort of organize the younger ones and um, kind of establish that relationship. So I wasn't just walking in, not, not knowing anything about, um, you know, their own, um, I guess their own sort of norms and um, the, the way that they're structured and whatnot. Um, so he made some introductions and gave me some guidance and then I just started going and visiting with them.
0: I just think it's such an uh, extraordinary thing, respect to you to do that. That's And I also feel like that, that could almost be, Part of something uh, bigger that 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 uh, could be organized to, to have uh, people not only women it could be men too, but to, that actually goes out uh, to to young kids who don't have um, parents and read read to them. It's I just think it's such a beautiful thing. So I'm, I'm I know uh, um, I'm in, I'm in awe. I
1: mean I mean I'm trying to think of it's UNHCR possibly that I just read on Twitter the other day that they have a thing where people can read stories. Um, I'm not sure the, the platform they're using, but to read uh, stories to children who are in refugee camps. Um, yeah, I think stories right. are so super powerful for children, especially stories of um, other children who faced really um, trying experiences and have made it through. Because um, we like to think that childhood is a really great happy time for all children. And that's just not, not true um, for a lot of children in the world. Um, even for some of our next door neighbors, probably. So they really need those stories of um, resilience and self-agency.
0: Absolutely. Uh, and I, I'm happy to see that uh, when it comes to uh, my uh, kindergarten and my six-year-old son, that it, his school, they're using stories a lot in their um, education because I feel like that, that's more often when he has listened to a story that then he has more questions or he you can see that that resonates with him or he he thinks about it and he can come up with questions even the next day or it lives with him in a completely different way than if he's actually just been taught things like more in a in a more traditional educational way so i i am absolutely with you when it comes to stories I have a are extremely powerful uh for for children yeah i
1: think Um, That's, um, you know, in a traditional sense, that's um, what we would say, like a a child's brain is calibrated to learn through stories. So often um, in a traditional way that um, children will be told a story to give them some knowledge or a a way of figuring out something. um, It could even be scientific. It could be social, figuring out something in their lives. And then as they get older, often they're retold that story again. But they'll get something entirely new out of it. And those stories grow with the children as, as they grow in, even into adults.
0: Let's go back to um, horse shit. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit. What is what is a, what do you call her, a bronco rider?
1: Yeah, she, so she's a bareback bronc rider. So there's two types of a bronc rider. Um, one is saddle bronc. Um, so Kayla Muscle, if anybody want to know more about um, Saddle Bronc, Kayla Muscle is um, a very famous, uh, now famous, uh, female uh, bronc, uh, saddle bronc rider. Um, and it's just not a, a world that there are really many female en- females engaged in. Um, so myself, I rode a tiny bit of Saddle Bronc. Um, was not super great at I, I mostly rode bareback. So that's, um, it's just a different method of how you try to stay on the horse. Um, you have different equipment that you use. Um so saddle bronc is a type of saddle that you would have on the on the horse, and bareback is more like it's almost like a handle you strap onto the horse, but you don't have an actual saddle. And so yeah, so Sadie rides um, bareback, and it's uh, just not um, not something that you would very often find a female doing.
0: And do you uh, win if the one who stays on the longest wins, or is it like a competition uh, like that? No,
1: so it's. Um, Seconds you have to stay on for eight seconds, and then there are some different um, things that happen. Um, you have to um, so well. There's so there'll be uh, judges, and they will give 50% of the score will go to how the horse bucks, and 50% goes to um, how the rider how well the rider rides, and then they put those together, and that's how you get your score. So whoever has uh, your score doesn't count if you don't make eight seconds. Um, and there's a few other things that go into that, but um, that you, you could have your score not count. Um, but basically, if you follow all the rules and you make it eight seconds, they will take your score that you get and then um, compare that to everybody else who rode and whoever gets the highest score then wins.
0: And it, it's basically a rodeo. Or, yeah, or, I mean, rodeo. you have to excuse me. I'm Swedish. But oh, no, right. <laughs> the, the, it's, it's, it's the same thing as a rodeo.
1: Yeah, it, it's, a, it's one of the events in rodeo.
0: Right. And so were you, were, did you actually have other uh, female uh, colleagues, so to speak, or competitors that were there or were you actually the only no, one? No,
1: it was just me. And as I said, um, so Kayla Muscle was riding in it at the time I was riding. It was a long time ago and she's still riding. Um, but I believe she was pro already by then. And I was I was amateur. So we didn't ever go to the same rodeos. Um so I, as far as I know, in Canada, we were the only two at that time. I'm not sure. There could have been other females, but I don't, not that I'm aware of. And I know that in the United States that there were more women um, who were riding, but none that I ever encountered.
0: Right. And of course, Sadie is is more or less in that situation too, right? right? She, uh, as far as I remember, she didn't, there were all men yes. around. She she lives in a very male dominant uh, world uh, in in the novel. Yeah. Um, and she's, and of course she has, um, it's not only that she, um, uh, lives in a, in a very male dominant world and she's an exotic dancer, but she is also basically an alcoholic, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Addiction is a, is a huge, um, part of her life. And she's not like, she's not a, because she's in her twenties, you know, she's, she's not the glamorous party girl. She's like, definitely somebody who's really suffering from alcoholism.
0: She feels extremely real. Has she changed over these years when you were writing or or did did you have a kind of a clear vision of who she was when you started Um, writing? She's
1: one of the characters that probably didn't change very, very much um, throughout. I think um, her conclusion in the end, that definitely developed and grew as I did. I I didn't really know um, whether she was going to sink or swim or what that would look like. So so my idea of what that would be changed over the years, but um, she didn't change very much. I had this idea of, I, I guess probably going back to my real obsession with Mordecai Richler and then later on um, in my thirties discovered Annie Prue. I, I kept hearing that I, I wrote kind of like Annie Prue, so I had to check it out. And um, and <laughs> she has some characters that are, are kind of um, like that as well that, um, you know, you, sometimes you just want to hit them over the head and tell, tell them like, get your stuff together. Um, so yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, an anti-hero for me, she was, she was always going to be that sort of anti-hero who, um, I think especially, you know, I, we have all these men who are anti-heroes, but I think women have a much deeper tendency to turn on themselves when, um, they've been violated or hurt or something goes really wrong in their lives, they're so much more likely to turn on themselves, I find, sometimes than men. And sometimes the way they turn on themselves is in really masculine ways because they identify that with um, a way to regain some power. If they could just make it in a man's world, um, then they'll be okay, but they can do it in really destructive ways. So it, it sort of fascinates me that there aren't more female characters out there who are very self-destructive and trying to do things in very masculine ways.
0: I think you said you were going to do a kind of a documentary about the, how this book came to be. Yeah, Is that yeah, true?
1: I'm going to do it. I'm working on it um, partway through now. Um, yeah. a Short documentary of how it came to be um, it's just this really strange intersection of things that I wanted to explore where um, I had this idea of this character in my head. And then I went and lived, well, all my characters really, I guess, have, facets of me somewhere in them or people that have been close to me um but where I had this idea of these characters and then went and lived some of it or um where I lived things and then it ended up in the story but it's just such a mix of all of those so I wanted to go back sort of even just for myself to explore how that all happened
0: and and that is part of what this grant uh, is for yeah, as well it's,
1: um just to to the overall theme of the grant is to um, do something exploring your process. So I, I chose to right. pick a particular project that I want to explore the process of that project.
0: Well, I'm looking forward to, to um, see that. And so let's talk about your process a little bit when it comes to uh, writing. So do you, um, do you use pen and paper or a typewriter or do you use a computer? How do you uh, work? Yeah,
1: well, originally for this one, it started off pen and paper and then... A typewriter. I, I mean, I definitely could have been writing on a computer by the time I was 17, but I really liked my typewriter. I guess I thought it was very authorly. Um, Now, yeah, now I I definitely am a computer person. Um, Sometimes I just get these downloads in my head too. That's a huge part of my writing is just hearing voices, or it's almost like a movie starts playing in my head and I see something. So the notes app on my phone is really, really full of a lot of writing because wherever I am, that's where I'm going to write <laughs> it down. Um,
0: yeah, it's very practical. The, the notes app is, is wonderful. And I'm
1: really liking. Uh, so I just had recently converted to using Scrivener, which I'm, I'm loving because I can jot things down when I get that happen on my note cards and then I can um, juggle them around. And it's just so much easier than all the cutting and pasting that I was doing before. Um, yeah. So I, I mean, I sort of just got this big storm and, and write. Uh, I'm very much one of those people who would say I work with the muses, but then I also I'll go back and I'm like a really bad perfectionist. So I rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. I also, um, you know, will do research or um, I'll go over a scene and then I'll just slow myself down and really spend a lot of time visualizing what that actually looked like. And, um, what sort of emotions were involved and in, and not necessarily to write the emotions out. I'm not a big fan of saying, you know, so-and-so was upset I'm much more rooted in like the physicality of how they, how they would look if they were upset.
0: It's very much uh, Cormac McCarthy territory. It's both when it comes of course, to the landscapes and the, and the but also the, 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 the characters and some of the psychology. Uh, are, you, are you at, at all um, influenced by well, Cormac so it's, McCarthy? It's pretty
1: interesting. So when I joined uh, Thonomy, um which is, is actually um, a site that was um, sponsored, I guess, by Harper Collins, and I started connecting with um, people who were other writers, but they were doing beta reading for me. And I kept hearing Cormac McCarthy and Annie Proulx like, over and over again. So that's when I became interested in both. And I, I love both of them a lot. Um, but I, I think I was already writing in that kind of vein. Um, before I would say a a bigger influence on me might have been like Guy Vanderhug um, who's a Canadian author he's done some really really interesting books where he turns um, the wild west sort of genre tropes on their on their head Um, he's probably um, most famous for the Englishman's boy Um, and he's somebody who does really intense historical research and whatnot but I just loved how he Really di- dissected these um, this mythology that we have of the West that actually isn't very accurate. Yeah, he's just a phenomenal writer. He's been one of my favorites since I don't know, probably like um, since I was about fifteen or sixteen. So I would say that he was probably a bigger influence on me. Though definitely when I started hearing about um, about Annie Proulx and Cormac McCarthy, I, I dove into that and read read quite a bit. And probably they're they're an influence now when I write. But um, no, I couldn't say when I first began that it, it was.
0: Well, it's pretty good to be compared to those two uh, yeah, I, giants. Definitely
1: I slattered. <laughs>
0: so, and what other kind of uh, uh, favorites do you have, uh, when oh, it comes to
1: um, Oh, uh, for sure. I, um, she's just a phenomenal, Anishinaabe uh, woman. Um, She's—I don't even know how many books she's published. Uh, just, I love how she has um, different characters interweaving in these really sort of. Um, like epic narratives but also that they're really realistic characters and I think what ended up happening for horseshit is I had some characters who were indigenous some who weren't some who were mixed some who um very much identified some who were very lost culturally and um where that all intermingled when they all came together and she just does that so beautifully the way she explores it with her characters she's just phenomenal
0: Will there be a follow-up to this book? Will we know more about Sadie? What happens to her after this book Uh, or what are your plans? I I would
1: like to eventually go back and explore some of the other characters. So um, in Horseshit, uh, Sadie meets up with um, three other characters and they've known each other before when they were coming of age and have their own backstory um, and how they chose to move forward and who they would become at that coming of age point. I would like to actually go back and explore more of their own stories. Uh, But right now I'm working on, I'm working on it for a little bit. Um, It's a story about um, sin eaters. And it's a little bit like a vampire trope, but really turned on its head. So they're um, healers that take on, um, when people are going to die, they take on those sins of those people and they alchemize them. Um, And that becomes their, um, their power and the key to like their longevity or um, that they're immortal. But now they've kind of um, taken on, I would say uh, sort of like a a spiritual cholesterol. And so they're, they're getting sick and um, it's very much um, woven into some pulp sort of tropes as well. There's um, a gang of bikers and there's some, some, uh, there's an evil RCMP officer and, um, yeah so I weave all that in and that um, takes place in southern Alberta and then uh, another thing I'm working on is uh, a children's story um, it's a collaboration with um, Goncor uh of Art Represent and we've we're working with the artists she represents who uh, visual artists they all either um, come from conflict regions or they're still in conflict regions and so they've each submitted a piece of art and then um, we've interviewed them and written their stories or in some cases they've written their own stories and I've edited them about um, their experiences going to school and the sort of commonality whether they've had good experiences or bad is um, the propaganda that exists in the classroom and of course we also turn that um, on its head because we're not just talking about Crimea or Afghanistan or Iran um, but we also are going to look at North America and um revisionist history and Indigenous mascots and and things like that as well.
0: Is there anything that you would like to add or something I should have asked? I'm sure there was something.
1: anybody wanted to follow up more, um, probably Facebook. Uh, It's uh, Christy Jordan Fenton, so C-H-R-I-S-T-Y, J-O-R-D-A-N, F-E-N-T-O-N, Um, I share a lot of things that I find interesting there or um, where I'm at working through my own relationship with perceptions. Um, Also, I have a website, which is somewhat under construction. But if anybody was interested in um, my children's books at all, um, that worked with, um, along with Liz, and then my children's grandmother, uh, Margaret Pokiak-Fenton, is uh, cjordanfenton.com. And I've got some teacher resources there if anybody was interested in um, the children's books and and some resources to go with that. Um, I'm not sure. I'm sure there are other things that I should be sharing, but I, I can't think of them offhand.